Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jeff Zimmerman. He's like, oh, what are you, college boy or something? And I was like, yeah, I, I went to college, <laughs> but you are also going to college in the fall. <laughs> that and more, but first, are you in Seattle or Portland or anywhere near Seattle or Portland? Well, pitch us your stories and you might be included in our Seattle show or our Portland show. Seattle is on November 18th. Portland, November 19th. You can pitch us by going to risk-show.com slash submissions. The suggested optional themes of the stories that night are also listed on that page. And if you want to see one of those shows, if you don't want to pitch us to be up on stage, but want to come see it, go to risk-show.com slash tour. Also, while we're talking about pitches, now's the time to send us your winter holiday stories. Stories about Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, Thanksgiving, you know, happy stories. Could be sad stories, too. But pitch us those winter holiday stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is David Carbonara behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Make Yourself at Home. (laughs) Rather ironic title, actually, for these three stories. Now, this is the very first episode of what will be our 13th year very first episode of the podcast was October 6, 2009. I can't lie, this has been, I think, the toughest year. I think 2021 has made 2020 <laughs> look easy by comparison. I feel like Captain Ahab some weeks, just chasing after the white whale that is keeping risk running despite our financial situation. I had to get on Medicaid. So, I don't know, maybe that'll ease up at least 
some of the bills in my personal life over here. I will say, you know, like, <laughs> there is no team of people that are more determined to keep things running than we are here. There's definitely going to be some radical brainstorming next year about uh, things we might try to do differently. <laughs> I spoke to Dixie De La Tour of body storytelling over the weekend, and she said, have you found yourself in 2021 just like avoiding talking to the audience on the podcast because you're just trying to hide? <laughs> like how not entertaining <laughs> things are behind the scenes? We just live in a society where if you're an artist, you're either making art for a giant corporation or, or you're on life support. But I know there are exceptions. There are people who figure out, carve out for themselves a middle way, right? And if we've managed to keep the stories and the episodes as strong as we have, then we should be capable of of doing that too. And these three stories today are the perfect example of how strong we've kept things. Now, two of these three stories were recorded at very recent risk live shows at Caveat in New York City. Everyone who has attended those shows has been talking about what a huge difference it makes to be sitting in a room experiencing live theater. You know, it's funny, people constantly write in about having feelings about how the audience reacted to this in this recording or how the audience reacted to that in that recording. Well, you can be a part <laughs> of that very unpredictable and live phenomena of being that audience responding if you come and be with us. You know, the communal experience of watching the body language and facial expressions and, and just the whole experience in the room of being together for a risk show. Nothing compares to it. So come on out because October 20th, risk is back at Caveat. It's 7 p.m. Eastern. It's our big scary stories annual October show. It'll be simultaneously live streamed on YouTube. You can get your tickets either for the live stream or the in-person show at risk-show.com slash tour. Let's get to the stories in a little bit. We're going to hear from Jeff Zimmerman. Jeff has told some classic stories on the show before, and the one you'll hear today is from one of our live streams from back during the lockdown. But before that, we're going to hear from Cindy Freeman, one of our most beloved members of our team. <laughs> no one works harder than Cindy Freeman. And, and her workshops, the, the work that Cindy does at the Story Studio, especially the corporate workshops that she puts together for businesses, people just adore Cindy Freeman, and rightfully so, we do too. She's invaluable to us. You can find her at cindyfreemanstoryteller.com, and here she is live at Caveat with a story we call In the Center of the Storm. I wake up, it's still dark, but it's a storm. 
And I don't know about you guys, but I love when I can hear that storm and see the flashes in the window and hear the pelting of the rain, and I'm cozy in my own bed. And as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, you know what? This is like an analogy of life. My life felt chaotic and storm-like, but this storm that I'm listening to is going to pass, and it made me sort of meditate half asleep on how the problems of my life were going to pass. Whatever's going out in the real world outside this, I am safe in my room. And I've got an apartment, and I can afford food, and I have a job. I'm okay. And finally, after months of depression and sadness, I'm able to go to sleep without any nightmares. What was troubling me at the time, so I can give you some context, was a breakup. One that I felt just truly betrayed. I had considered Harold one, like my best friend at the time. He was in Ireland, I was in New York, it was long distance, you know. I knew it was gonna end. But I had made a pact with him, like, you know, hey man, like, if you meet someone or I meet someone, like, we just gotta be honest, you know? Like, no ghosting. And he's like, I would never do that to me. You're my best friend. Like, why would you think I would do something like that? I'm like, because people, I don't know, they get cowardly and just don't do that. He goes, I won't. And then he did it. (laughs) Totally did it. So three weeks into the person who used to text me all the time, not texting me, I was like very angry. And I finally was able to like call him over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until he finally picked up. All right. And I'm like, you have a girlfriend. Yes, I do. I'm going to kill you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. It's like, it's been three weeks. Like my feelings are super now. Whatever. But I said to him, like, you know, I get it, I get it. You didn't know what to say. Um, uh, We've been friends for, like, well over a year. Just let's give it some time, and maybe we can salvage a friendship on the other side. But the thing I think that was really the weight of it was how, aside from him, I was just so gosh darn lonely in New York. And I'd only moved there, like, three years before um, from Boston. I was... 39 when I moved and my sister warned me she's like you know it's really hard to meet new people when you're over 40 and here I was I was over 40 and it was really hard to meet new people and I just couldn't find my core of folks dating was a train wreck um it was just not working for me I mean there were the girls at the bar I was working at and they were all a little younger than me and all doing way more drugs than me so they were cute but I didn't Relate. Uh, there was my roommate who I'd gotten along with so well when we moved in together who then joined Landmark Forum. <laughs> and now I couldn't like run out of breakfast cereal without him saying, this would never have happened to you if you joined Landmark Forum, you know? Uh, <laughs> And then, of course, it was the, what had become my new haunt, which was the coffee shop slash bar around the corner from me in Brooklyn. I mean, it was a coffee shop, but if you wanted a Jack Daniels at 7 a.m., you just let them know, and they pour it in a to-go cup and like send you on your way. And there I had you know, befriended Jimmy, uh, Big Jimmy, Little Jimmy, Tattoo Jimmy, and Roofer Jimmy. And the owner, who was this ex-police officer who was in his 60s, who, like, if you ordered an omelet, he would make it in his apartment upstairs and come down in his pajamas and serve it to you with, like, a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And... And if you came in in the afternoon, you would find him on his laptop with his new hobby, which was catfishing people and pretending he was Simone, a 26-year-old lesbian. And, hey, you know, what should I say? And I was like, I'm not getting involved. Like, so it wasn't that I didn't know people. <laughs> Anyhow, so I was feeling really lonely. 
And I just was like going with this depression, but at least I'd woken up in a good frame of mind. And I did my affirmations. You have a bright future. You have a bright future. You have a bright future. I said it 10 times. And then uh, my new habit was to get out of the house. Like don't talk to landmark forum guy, just get out of the house and socialize. So I went to the coffee shop and there they are, all the Jimmies and Daisy behind the counter and they're in this huddle. And I'm like, hey, and they're like, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, you, you don't live on 62nd Street, do you? And I'm like, no, I live on 60th. Oh, we thought you were on 60th. I'm like, no, why? It's like, well, the tornado. <laughs> and I'm like, what tornado? He goes, the tornado last night, the tornado. And I'm like, there was a tornado? It's like, yeah. And Daisy's like, yeah, I mean, it was 62nd Street. Like, it ripped roofs off of buildings. I'm like, seriously? And she's like, you gotta go. When you're done here, just go out there. I mean, the cars are overturned. Like, the trees are up. You should see the park. You know, the Nissan, like the, the entire side of the building is off. I'm like, oh, my God. And then one of the Jimmies pipes up with, yeah, and this woman, she just died, like, going to work. Like, her car got caught up in it, big, fiery car crash. I'm like, Jesus. And I'm like, you didn't know about the tornado? I'm like, well, I heard the storm. It was a, all right, great. So they're all, like, freaking out. And I understand this is their neighborhood. This is where they grew up. And they're worried about Jeff, who lives on 62nd. Does anyone have his phone number? And they're... And I'm trying to help them, like, figure out, you know, how to connect with people. But they're really, they're really upset. And I try to comfort them. And then I, I leave and I walk the neighborhood. And as I'm walking the neighborhood, I'm seeing everything they described. I mean, 62nd Street is it's police tape. And you can see, like, the bricks are off the buildings and on the cars. You can see pieces of the roofs, and it's on the cars. And I get to the park, and these beautiful sycamore trees have been, like, plucked out of the ground and it's all of the roots and they're just sort of splintered and lying everywhere and I go home and I watch the news and this woman who lived on 62nd Street's being interviewed and she's like I was asleep in my bed and I heard what sounded like a freight train and suddenly it's like buildings vibrating and then I'm being pelted with what feels like rocks and water and I run out, I run down the stairs, I open the door just in time to see a tree coming at me and I slam the door as it hit. I thought I was gonna die. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm so lucky that I'm not on 62nd Street, that I'm on 60th. And then I start thinking I live on the top floor I'm not actually safe in my own bed. And that whole thing that had woken me up in a good, like, I'm not safe in my own apartment. I'm not safe in my own bed. And then I'm ruminating and it's getting dark and I'm not going to go to Landmark Foreign Guy about this. So I'm, I'm just thinking about it when suddenly my, my uh, email dings and it's the guy, Harold, from Ireland. And he's like, hey, how are you? And I'm thinking, oh, you've probably heard about it. I mean, at this point, it's made all of the national news in the U.S., so it's, I'm not surprised that, you know, it's hitting some, you know, rooters or whatever, and he's heard about it in Ireland. And, you know, it's like, you know, if, if the only thing I get out of this tragic day where so many people might be homeless and this poor woman's family is grieving is at least I get my friend back, like, there'll be something positive in it. So I just sort of, like... Pour out my heart, this is how I'm feeling. There's these people, it's tragic. I don't know how to help. I don't even know where to go to help. And I send it off because he's this positive guy and he should be able to like help me sort it out. And I figure he'll call. He doesn't call. And I'm waiting and then I realize, wait a minute, you know, there's a five hours difference. He's in Ireland, I'm in New York. I give it to when I think he's off of work at five, which is one, and he still doesn't call. And he still doesn't call. 
And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, like, all right, what would my therapist say? And my therapist would say to me, life is the story you tell. And you can't change what the truth is. You can't change the details because those are the concrete things that happen. But how you frame it is how you find hope. You know, the how you frame it is how you find positivity. This is where transformation happens. So what are the facts? The facts are there was a tornado. The facts are my neighbors are homeless. The facts are there's a woman who around the corner died and her family's grieving. The facts are my friend is no longer my friend. What is the positive twist? I got nothing. I got absolutely friggin' nothing. I gotta get out of the house. I gotta get out of the house. I gotta go. I'm not gonna go to the local bars because they're all gonna be talking about the tornado and I need to get away from the tornado. I need to get away from this depression. I just need to get on top of it. So I see that there is a poetry reading at Bowery Poetry Club. And my friend Lee had told me, I perform there all the time, you should come down. So I'm thinking, maybe I'll see Lee. I texted him, like, I'm coming down, I don't know if you'll be there. I get dressed, because like, he was going to introduce me to his friends, and I get there. And I get myself a cosmopolitan, I'm sitting at the bar. They all seem to know each other, it seems like a nice, warm community. And the first person gets up, and this poem is about suicidal ideation. And then the second poem is also about suicidal ideation. <laughs> And then the third poem, uh, well, it's this cute little hipster guy with the ironic T-shirt, and it starts with, God is like a thousand serial killers who all want us to die. <laughs> and I'm like, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta, like, I gotta go. Like, like, there is just too much pain in the universe, and it's all here, and I gotta go. So I leave, and then I'm like, now where? I'll go home, I'll go home, I'll go home, and I'll watch the 70s show. Nothing terrible is gonna happen on the 70s show. So I'm walking home, and I get past Barraquette, which was one of my favorite restaurants. It is gone, gentrification, but I love the place. I don't know if you know it. But I get to past Barraquette, and I'm thinking, oh, they have such great baba ganoush. And then I'm like, have I even eaten today? And the answer is no. I'm like, that's part of the problem here. I need to take care of myself. I will get baba ganoush. They have the best baba ganoush. It's super smoky. It's got a lot of garlic. I order it. I get my tub. It's this huge. I get the largest one I can get. And I'm thinking, half of that's my dinner tonight, and half of it's a treat tomorrow. And as I take my little brown paper bag of joy onto the subway, I'm thinking, at least I can take care of myself. If that's the only thing I can do, because I don't know how to care for anyone else who is like going through hell, because it seems that maybe people are having much worse days than I am. So I sit down, and I kind of notice the movement, and I look down, and I hear the shuffling, and it's a homeless gentleman, and his shoes is that, I see his feet first. You know, he's got, the, he's shuffling because the soles of his shoes are not attached to the tops of the shoes, and his, his feet are covered in soot. And he's a few years older than me, so I would place him at maybe 49 or 50, gray hair, completely disheveled. Everything is covered in soot. And I'm thinking he's going to ask me for money. And he says, is that food? And it's my dinner. And there's no restaurants near me that are open. And I'm like, and then I think, you know, I can't help the woman who's grieving or her family or the, you know, the dead woman and her family who's grieving. I, I can't help the neighbors. I can't put them up in my apartment. Um, but I could do something here. I could help this homeless guy. And I give him my food. I'm like, here you go. And he's like, seriously? I'm like, yeah, it's food and it's yours. And he's like, oh, thank you. And I'm like, you're welcome. And he, he shuffles on down to the other side of the bench and sits down just as the train comes in. And as I get on the train, I think this is the narrative I was looking for. 
this is how I'm going to get through this terrible and truly sad and tragic day that I can't control the weather and I can't control who gets hurt and I can't control Harold and I can't control the owner of the bar who likes to catfish people as a 26-year-old lesbian named Simone. Um, but I can control what I put into the world. And I did something good here and I helped one person. And I start feeling just a little bit lighter and back to the sense of, hey, maybe I actually do have a bright future. And as the train jolts into action, I look out the window and I watch as the homeless guy opens the bag and pulls out the baba ganoush and opens it and smells it. And then a look of horror <laughs> and true disgust comes over his face. And I can't hear him, but I can tell that he is screaming and cursing at the top of his lungs. And as we pull out, the last thing I see is his arm in this arc as he throws my favorite food onto the subway platform and it splatters like a Pollock painting. And as we go into that tunnel, I think maybe some days you just really need to accept that today just sucks. Thank you. Hey, Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Gonna get myself a heap of scoop of Baba Ganoush. Gonna eat it with some pita. <laughs> Baba Ganoush. Throw an eggplant in the blender. Voila. Baba Ganoush. Ain't no one gonna keep me from my Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. A bippy boppy gloopy gloppy Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. A slippy sloppy drippy droppy Baba Ganoush. I'm taking it home. I'm eating it soon. Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush, gonna drink it with a straw, gonna eat it with a spoon. Baba Ganoush, Baba Ganoush. Then I see a guy who's down on his luck, and I have a heart, I do give a fuck. He looks at my bag and says, is that some food? And damn it, I was just in such a generous mood. I give him the bag and get on the train. A smile on my face, a good deed on my brain. Turn back to look. And what do I see? The man is hopping up and down and screaming at me. It goes up with a throw and comes down with a sploosh. That man fucked up a perfectly good Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. I'm gonna be Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. I really, really want some Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Baba Ganoush. Please welcome to the virtual stage, Jeff Zimmerman! <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks, guys. This is awesome. But yeah, look. Kevin mentioned this. I used to live in Australia. I lived in Perth, Western Australia, for that one guy out there that's clocking in from Australia. I lived in Perth as an illegal alien, and I freelanced for Vice Magazine until I ran out of money and my grandma had to bring me home, which would have been real cool if I was 17 years old, but I was, in fact, 28, long after you're supposed to be doing that shit. 
So I'm living with my parents and I was working at a pizza joint one block from the high school that I went to. And I was waiting on girls that I was into in high school. You know, and they're like, oh, look, you're doing this now. And I was like, uh, no, 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 I did. I just did all the cool stuff. I worked with the Rue Shooter and wrote about it for Vice Magazine. And I was going to be the next Hunter S. Thompson. And they were like, yeah, okay, uh, just make sure no anchovies are on my part. You know, it, like they didn't care. <laughs> and I firmly believe that what you do every single day is who you are. So I was like, let me stop being this dude living at his mom's house with a part-time pizza-making job and get out faster. I'm going to take the first job I could find. And that job was pouring concrete for a construction company in Southern Virginia for Buddy Baker Construction. Uh, Buddy Baker was the owner of the company and Buddy Baker um, had just the just ruinous mullet you can possibly imagine and he always kept a loaded nine millimeter tucked into the waistband of his sweatpants I mean maybe he used it for self-defense when I wasn't around but what he mostly used it as was a laser pointer so he'd be like okay hey uh, Jeff I'm gonna need you get that generator put up on the back of the truck there all right let's go I don't know I don't know if he needed it for self-defense but I know he didn't need it to highlight the nouns in his sentence Okay, <laughs> that seems excessive to me. I don't feel like I'm like going out on a political limb with that. And then uh, the boss, like the field boss, was this guy named Red. And Red is spelled with three letters, but because it's the South, it's also pronounced with three syllables. Red, like that. And Red had this mullet that, for the workday, for the workplace, he braided into the longest rat tail in the world. It reached down and it touched the top of his ass, which was too tan to get a sunburn. Okay, that was the workday mullet. I don't even know what kind of magnificence he unfurled at five o'clock, right? And then one morning we're sitting around the depot. It is 7.30 in the morning and we're like loading jackhammers and construction equipment onto the truck and Buddy Baker went to take a phone call or something and then there I heard it's like, and we all know what that sound means. And someone goes, because <laughs> in case you didn't know what it means, then I heard, <laughs> somebody passes me a joint. 7.30 in the morning on a Wednesday. Why not? Right? And I was like, oh, no. I, uh, uh, we're going to work heavy machinery, man. Uh, I, can't, I can't be doing that. You know? And he was like, and Red was like, no, 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 you don't understand, man. Buddy Baker don't care if you smoke weed on the job. He cares if he sees you smoking weed on the job, right? See, it's about your judgment, and he just wants you to keep it quiet. And uh, <laughs> this other guy, Wayne White, was just like, Shit, he better not care about smoking weed on the job. Much meth as he bought for the Christmas party. You know, and I was just like, I can't, I cannot be doing this, guys. I can't be doing this. And they were like, well, why? Right? These guys skipped the PE class where we learned about peer pressure and cool. And I was just like, well, because I'm, I'm trying to get some other jobs, man. And a couple of these jobs are big boy jobs. they got piss tests associated with them. And I can't blow a piss test because I smoked weed at 730 in the morning. And the guys were like... Oh. Oh, well, I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and I mean, I made it weird because, like, I made it very clear that I'm just passing through y'all's daily life and I'm on to some bigger stuff. And they didn't exactly appreciate it. And the guy next to me let me know that. He's like, oh, what are you, a college boy or something? And I was like, yeah. 
I went to college, but you are also going to college in the fall, right? This kid was 17 years old. He's the net Buddy Baker's nephew, first one in the whole family tree to go to college. And he was so proud of it, except for when I said I was going to college, apparently. And this guy just wanted to be one of the fellas. He wanted to impress all the guys as much as possible. So he was always the second guy to laugh at whatever bullshit, but he always laughed the loudest. You know this where you like want to be respected and accepted by people that you do not respect or accept at all? It's like, I'm better than you and I know it, but I need you to know it. Right? That's what I need here. Okay, like I tried to talk about stuff I thought was cool. I was like, look, I used to be an illegal alien in Perth, Western Australia, worked with the Roo Shooter, and I wrote about it for Vice Magazine. I was going to be the next Hunter S. Thompson, and Red was just like, well, who's he play for? You know? And, all right. And then one day I'm at the job site, and I wish it was just one day, but it was one time out of many. I'm at the job site, and I've been like working this jackhammer, and I set it down for a second, and I'm taking a break, it's just covered in sweat and filth, and the fellas are all around, and this woman walks by the job site. And yes, okay, she I had noticed, I had perceived that she was wearing a very exciting skirt, okay? And I did what you do, which is you're like, the exciting skirt. Noted. File it into the Rolodex. Go on about your business quietly. And in case nobody else for a three-block radius noticed this lady's skirt, Red just called that shit out. He was just like, I'd like to lick her doo-doo hole. Like, real, real loud. And then she spins around and looks at everybody. And she has a look on her face that all of you at home have on your face after hearing that, right? Like, it's weird. For a guy that has no respect for the English language, Red really has a gift for metaphor, okay? He can paint a picture. <laughs> and she's just like, <gasps> you know, and like that weird, like, shocked but not surprised. And she wasn't, it's not a discerning facial expression, okay? She's not like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. I bet you majored in art. You're trying to get your life together. Fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, it was just a blanket... And I was just like, God, these guys are bringing me down right now with this. The kid is just like, <laughs> just yucking it up over there. <laughs> that was great, wasn't it? And I was just like, oh, he's got a gift. You know, I don't, I don't know. What am I supposed to say? Then one day, as a 28-year-old man, my mother was unavailable to pick me up from work. And so I had to get a ride home with the kid. And he's driving me home, and it's a narrow street, and we're in a bunch of traffic. Guess what? There's another lady who's also wearing an exciting skirt. And I, again, check and move on. You know, just mentally, but this is before internet stuff, but control V, let's move forward with dignity. You know, he just rolls the window down, tinted window. He rolls down, leans across my body. He's like, <laughs> I don't know what he said exactly. I don't really remember. He didn't have Red's gift for the English language, you know, but something like that and she turned and it's the same look and I was just like I am so sick of this I am so sick of being associated with these assholes all the time and I just turned to him and I was like what the fuck is your problem man what is your 
deal? Where do you, was there like one lady one time who just like jumped into a convertible and straddled you at a red light and y'all are just oh, chasing yeah. the dream from now on? What the fuck is this? And he was like, no, I just, I just uh, they just, I mean, I just, and I was like, no, listen, 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 listen. You're going to college this fall, okay? You're going to college in the fall and for the first time and maybe the only time in your life, you're going to be around the most attractive women you've ever met and they are just down to figure themselves out with possibly you, right? They're ready to make mistakes with you. And all you got to do is keep your mouth shut, okay? They're not going to, these are smart <laughs> girls and they're not going to do it with you if you run your shit like this and call shit out in public like that. Just shut up. I lied to him, right? Because the, the fact is, I don't know why people like this keep getting laid, but they do. And there's nothing I can do about it. But just the look on his face, I just drank it in. Like I'm an energy vampire. Because like I realized cognitively in that moment, like I was just like, oh yeah, no, guys don't do this because they, it, for the women, they do it to try to impress the other guys around them. But listen, when you're feeling bad about yourself and your place in life, there is no better quick and cheap pick-me-up than judging somebody who is very clearly beneath you. You know what I mean? When this person is very obviously a worse person than you, and you can point that out out loud to yourself and others around you, and just letting him know how thoroughly he had failed to impress me. Oh my God, it was delicious. It was delicious. Uh, the ride home, he would call it an awkward silence, but I would call it a sweet silence. It was a silence of victory. And I got right home and I was like, listen, if whatever you do every day is who you are, then I am the kind of guy that tolerates this sort of asshole behavior. So I called up Buddy Baker and I quit that job, right? And I had a whole lie lined up and everything. And he was like, ah, man, I knew he was going to quit. I just didn't think it was going to be this quick, but I knew he was going to do it. And I was like, really? Why? He goes, oh, gee, you're better than this job is why. <laughs> all, this, all those other assholes, they're my friends from high school, but them rednecks have got no ambition. Whew, that was fulfilling. That was what I needed. Uh, I mean, I later went on to work. Uh, I got a job. I passed a piss test because I, you know, foresight. And I got a job as a business banking researcher at a researching company that basically does best practices market research for banks that loan to Fortune 150 businesses. And I did all the research on that. And I lied the whole time. I was so bad at that job. I did not belong there. At all. It was actually a worse fit than the construction job, but it was air conditioned and it was indoors, and all of the misogyny in the office was less Southern Gorilla and more like Brett Kavanaugh. So I didn't really realize for six months that it was the wrong job, but one year later when I got fired, I still acted pretty mad because you got to give them a show when you're better than what's around you. Uh, all right.
mundo Cause it's a man down there This is Risk. This is the Allman Brothers behind me now. And we just heard from Jeff Zimmerman, who you can find on Instagram at jeff.zimmerman. But also, you should definitely check out The Reluctant Phoenix. That is Jeff's podcast where he interviews people who have restarted their lives, whether or not they wanted to in the first place. And it's available wherever you get your podcasts. The Reluctant Phoenix, what a brilliant concept to be exploring with a podcast right now. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, all about the word Baba Ganoush, which I have just learned means pampered daddy. How I wish. <laughs> That I was known in the kink realm as Pampered Daddy, rather than Daddy very much lacking in sugar. <laughs> but speaking of sugar, why don't you throw a little our way? Did you know that if you go to patreon.com slash risk, there are so many bonus stories. There are check-ins from me behind the scenes. There are interviews with people on the staff and some of your favorite storytellers. There's just so much to find there. I want to give a huge shout out to our latest Patreon member, Gabe Lipman. And you know, there's various tiers. If you give this much, you get these many perks. Well, Gabe will be getting a Skype video chat with me. We're going to spend some time talking storytelling and whatever else. I love doing that sort of thing. One of my very, very favorite things to do in life is interacting personally with the fans. In fact, one of the things we want to brainstorm on changing things up next year is how to do more of that. How to, I don't know, socialize more, make, make the risk community more connected. But whatever changes might be made in the future, you can make them possible <laughs> by helping us out, by, you know, pitching in and helping to keep Risk running. It is all at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. 
It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Christina Chu. This was recorded at a recent live show at Caveat in New York City. Christina is the winner of the James Allen McPherson Award for her novel, Beauty. Her book, Troublemaker and Other Saints, was a nominee for a Stephen Crane First Fiction Award and winner of the Asian American Literary Award. It's her first time on Risk, but we sure hope to have her on again based on how it went. Without further ado, here is Christina Chu with a story we call A Different Table. I'm 16. My family's Chinese. We sit around a round or circular table. Tonight, my mom has made the most delicious food. Every single night, she makes the house smell awesome. Picture it like a clock. My dad sits at 12. My identical twin sister sits at two. My mother sits at five. My brother sits at seven. And I sit at 10 stuck between my dad and my brother. We eat family style, so the dishes are in the middle of the table, and my mother has made my favorites. So we have steamed broccoli, soy sauce beef, and we have my all-time favorite, steamed flounder in a bed of minced scallions and ginger, over which she pours boiling oil It sizzles and pops, and all of the smoke rushes up to the ceiling and mushrooms out, and the entire house smells of it. And it's so delicious. All I want to do is eat. So I sit down, and I help myself to some fish, and my sister helps herself to some Chinese broccoli, and she starts telling us she took the dog for a walk before, and she met the new neighbors. And they're really nice. My brother, he's 22, back from college, not so happy about that. He happens to be a registered Republican, like my father, and it's the Reagan years. So he says, those Democrats, they always love to spend. I look at my sister, and I'm like, do not take the bait, do not. Do not take the bait because I could be talking about my nails and he'll say something that brings it back to politics because he knows we lean left, right? So I'm looking at her. I'm like, do not take the bait. What does she do? She's like, oh, yeah, those Democrats, they love to spend on things like public school. Duh. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God, this is not going to go well. I'm like stuffing the food into my mouth. It's 
getting harder and harder to swallow, you know, because it's amping up and the debate's like heating up. And I'm like, all I want to do is eat and get out of here. Just get me out. So I'm focused on my food. The two of them are going at it. And my brother's bringing up every subject, like, you know, welfare, unemployment. And my sister, you do, do not want to mess with someone who's like a numbers and statistics person because she is the kind of person that will say, according to the New York Times, and she'll give you the numbers, right? So it doesn't take too long before my brother's not doing so well. And my sister is just beating him down, and I'm looking at all the beautiful food on the table, and it's getting mushed up with all this anger and rage, and I'm like, ugh, all I want to do is just swallow it down and get out of here. And my dad, just before my brother is about to like lose, like the debate is crushed, he jumps in and he says, you can't trust the times. They're a liberal paper. <laughs> my brother looks at my sister and he's like, see stupid? And my sister's like, I'm not stupid. You're the one who's stupid, stupid. And my dad takes his fist and he bangs it down on the table and he says, you're all stupid. You're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, and you're stupid. And I'm gulping down, finish my meal, and rush upstairs to the bathroom where it's calm and quiet. I'm in such a panic that I am literally shaking. I'm sweating, I can hardly breathe, and my heart is just pounding. I just need it to stop. Just stop. So I lean over the toilet and I purge. I force myself. It's the one moment of release that I just can't get anywhere else. It's the one moment where I can actually breathe again and I feel calm. And when I look into the toilet, there's all this masticated food and all the anger and rage and I just feel so sad for my family when I flush it down. So later that night, my mom comes up to our room. My sister and I are studying and doing our homework. And she says to my sister, go say sorry. My sister's like, no. My mom says, you know, he's your father. And my sister starts to cry. But she goes down. And he's in the living room watching 60 Minutes. And she says to him, I'm sorry. And he looks at her and he says, you don't look sorry. I don't accept. At this point, I'm crying. So she comes up the stairs, comes into the room, and I'm like, are you OK? And she's like, what do you think? I'm fine. And she retreats to her corner, and I retreat to my corner, because we don't want our dad to hear anything, because then he'll come up. So needless to say, neither of us are like so psyched about going home after college. In fact, we don't go back. And my sister, she becomes an activist, and she goes into teaching. But she's always really tired, exhausted all the time. Me, I decide I'm going to be a writer. The only problem is. I'm blocked, like, all the time, every time I sit down. And the two of us, we want to have a relationship, 
but it's like our families infected our relationship, right? Like they've pitted us against each other. And now we don't even know how to make it work. So it's in our early 20s. We've both been doing individual therapy, whatever. And then we decide we're going to meet up. And we end up going to Central Park where we go rollerblading because we both like it. And it's a lot of fun. And so we're blading around, you know, and my sister says to me, why didn't you defend me? Hold on one minute. I'm like, defend you? Why did you take the bait? And she's like, you know, if you had said something, it could have made it better. And I'm like, there's nothing I could have said that would have had a different outcome. And she's like, if you had cared, you would have realized that I was anorexic. I'm like, you know, if you had cared, you would have realized I was bulimic. <laughs> and we stand there, it's like a face-off, and neither of us are listening, right? We're just like, and we retreat to our own corners, right? It takes a long time, but we keep trying. And over time, we start to realize, look, we were at the same table. If we are constantly coming back to the same table, we're still those teenagers, still in that house with my dad, my mom, and my brother. So in this case, we decide, look, we have to lay down our rage and our anger and our resentment. We have to find a new table. We have to create it. So over the course of the 20 years, we've been working really hard at, at building our relationship. It hasn't been easy, that's for sure. Before COVID, we end up going to have dinner at Bear Burger. My kids love Bear Burger, right? You know, And my younger son and I are gluten-free, and they have these collard green rolls, really good. And so, so my sister and her partner, Janine, have just renovated their patio. It's the first time in a year and a half we can actually get together and have dinner because we can have dinner outside. So they invite us over, and when we get to their lobby, in the lobby, we see a delivery that's Bear Burger. And we bring it upstairs with us. We go out into the patio. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen a patio this big and this beautiful in New York City, ever. It's incredible. They have this U-shaped lounge area with a huge umbrella. They have a teak table, it's all set with plates and everything, everything. And my sister is really unlike me in that anything green that comes into my house dies. My sister, on the other hand, has a green thumb. She has plants all over, like a fig tree. She's got like planters with all kinds of vegetables and lettuces and peppers. And it's like paradise. So we all hang out at the lounge area, and my older son's about to go to college, so they're asking him about that, and you know, if he's a major, and is he excited, and all this stuff. And the kids get hungry, so we move over to the table, and my sister's passing out the burgers, right? And Janine's filling up our drinks. We're just talking, and my burger comes, and it's an actual burger, because they didn't have the rolls. Now they actually have real buns, like gluten-free buns. So the two of us get to have real burgers like everyone else. And so we're just hanging out, talking and laughing and saying things like, remember that time? 
It's just so incredibly fun. It makes me actually kind of sad. Because I'm like, why couldn't we have had this? And then I look at my boys, and I think to myself, you know, I hope in 10, 20, 30 years from now, they'll want to come back to this table, make this their chosen family. And I really hope also that they build a relationship that will always be home. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is milk behind me now and we just heard from christina chu who you can find on instagram at chris chu 13 her novel beauty was one of kirkus review's best books of 2020 and folks october 20 the Risk Live Show is back at Caveat in New York City. It's 7 p.m. Eastern. It'll be simultaneously live-streamed on YouTube. Get tickets at risk-show.com tour. We really hope to see you there in the room where it happens. And, folks, the storystudio.org is where you will find our storytelling training. The people who work behind the scenes at risk as the producers and story coaches also teach at the Story Studio. On October 18th and October 20th, Amy Salloway will be teaching a storytelling for performance workshop also on November 13th and November 14th. So get on over to thestorystudio.org to learn more about our storytelling training. And did you know that you can hire me for one-on-one -on -one consultations and storytelling work over at kevinallison.com or just Hire me to do a little video message for a loved one or, or for yourself <laughs> over at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. 
Follow us on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at the Kevin Allison. And everything you need to know about Risk is at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I can't keep quiet. No. I can't keep quiet. No. I can't keep quiet. No. No, I won't keep Yes! 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 Yes!